Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney, and we're kicking off with a look at some of this week's top science stories, including an important breakthrough in the world of HIV. Kat. Online computer gaming sometimes has a bit of a bad reputation um, as people staying at home just playing with their computers into the small hours in their pants. Uh, And it's sometimes viewed as a mere pastime without much outward benefit. But now, a new paper published today in the journal Nature Structural Molecular Biology reveals how gamers playing an online game called Fold It have managed to crack the three-dimensional structure of an important protein produced by the Mason-Pfizer monkey virus, which causes a disease similar to AIDS in monkeys. Now, figuring out the 3D structures of proteins is really important in order to understand how they work and to develop drugs that can target them. Now, if you're a regular listener, you may remember that the paper's lead author, this Professor David Baker, he was back on the show in August talking about his work and talking about Fold It. Now, there's several lab techniques that can be used to figure out protein structures, but these don't always provide a definite answer, and they tend to rely on having a good idea, a good model of the structure with which to interpret your physical data. Now, in the case of this monkey virus protein, scientists had struggled for a very long time to come up with a solution with no luck. So the researchers turned to the ingenuity of the Foldit players to try and come up with the 3D structure. But I thought that they had mega supercomputers all over the world doing this kind of work rather than asking people at home to do it. Well, there's a lot of computing power going into doing 3D structural work. There's a big server called Rosetta, and it also uses distributed computing. That's the power of people's home computers when they're not using them. And they churn through millions of possible protein structures in an automated way to look for the ones that look most realistic. But again, in some cases, such as this monkey virus protein, Rosetta still can't provide the right answers. So they thought they'd apply a little bit of human intuition and puzzle solving. And what did that actually do? Well, in this case, the researchers gave the Foldit gamers some basic information about the protein's likely structure based on data from a technique called NMR spectroscopy. And the gamers set to work, kind of tweaking and playing and fiddling about with it, and they came up with a model which they tweaked a bit more. And the researchers particularly note the contributions of three gamers, and obviously they have online names, so that's SP Vincent, Grabhorn and Mimi, uh, for making specific breakthroughs in solving the structure. And now once the players had come up with a good model based on sound biochemical and physical principles so it worked as a protein the researchers could then use that model as the basis for interpreting the data from their physical analysis of the protein using x-ray crystallography and they found that it was a really good match proving that the folded gamers had accurately predicted the structure of the protein incredible to think that people at home doing this kind of work as a game are contributing to active science but why is this so important in this context Well, in the case of this monkey virus protein, this final structure has revealed some very interesting regions that could be targeted by specific drugs and could tell us about other virus proteins. But more importantly, this is the first demonstration of the power and ingenuity of online gamers to solve long-standing scientific problems, combining computing power with the human brain. And it doesn't necessarily need the brains of scientists. Most of these gamers don't have a background in biochemistry. And there's an awful lot of 
of unsolved protein structures out there. So it's likely that Foldit gamers are going to make a lot more breakthroughs in the future. So it's, it's nice to know that they're making contribution to science while sitting at home in their pants on the computer. Don't judge everyone by your own standards, Kat. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, this week, uh, scientists have also probed an interesting question, which is why we tend to exaggerate or over-exaggerate our own abilities, at least to ourselves. In other words, we're more confident than we ought to be. Uh, in fact, a study that was done previously showed that 94% of university lecturers rated their teaching skills as above average, which obviously can't be true. So why, given that we've got this clear observation that people do exaggerate their own abilities, why does it happen? Um, I don't know if you have anything to, to sort of add to this, Cap, because I know that it, it's inhumanly possible for you to spend as much time on Facebook and Twitter as your own profile <laughs> suggests that you would. Absolutely. I, I've heard of something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is where people who actually have less skills and less knowledge overrate their own skills and knowledge and people who are actually talented and clever kind of tend to play it down so i think there is a tendency to uh to exaggerate your your skills and knowledge if you actually don't have them and you don't realize you haven't got them but the really interesting thing that has been observed is that there is this ubiquity of people tending to be more confident than perhaps they should be and so we got this biological observation, it happens, but there's the question, of course, why does it happen? Well, there's a couple of guys, Dominic Johnson from Edinburgh University and James Fowler from University of California, San Diego, UCSD. We've had James Fowler on the show before, actually. Interesting character. Um, I interviewed him, and it was the time when he published the research showing that if your friends on Facebook gain weight, then they'll make you fat too. <laughs> so don't have fat friends on Facebook, was his conclusion. This time they've done something different. They've actually tested, with a very interesting paper published in Nature this week, this particular piece of um, questioning and what they've done is to build a computer model which they say in their own words uses mathematics that's painfully complicated in order to test this so what they do is they have some notional players computer generated players that compete for a resource and they're supplied with some information about each other and they have to then size up each other and decide if they want to either fight that person for the resource or to back down. And so the key thing here is the uncertainty. You think you know your opponent, but there's a degree of uncertainty. The other thing is that it also is determined by how big the prize is. And what they find is that time and time again when they run their model over many, many, many iterations, in other words, generations and generations of these trials, they find there is a clear benefit every time through being overconfident, having the idea that you're going to win when actually... Maybe you shouldn't think that. There's a clear biological advantage in this model. And the point is that if you decide always to back down, then you might be walking away potentially from a situation you might win and therefore you would potentially lose out on a meal ticket. So they argue it is actually beneficial for the most part to not back down and to have more confidence than perhaps you ought to. I don't know if that plays into your hands and your experience, Kat? I don't know. It's interesting to think that there's some biological basis to bluffing and uh, in case it pays off, I yeah. reckon. We'll have to wait and see. But you can find that published this week in the journal Nature if you want to follow it up. Wonderful piece of work. Now, also this week, a newly launched multi-million pound X-ray imaging facility at the University of Southampton has been providing new insights into a whole host of areas from climate change through to evolution. And the combined facilities that they've built at the site not only mean that a lot of things can be scanned very quickly, but also very large, and I mean seriously large things can be studied. Subjects that they're looking at range from dinosaur remains to bits of aircrafts and even crocodile poo. 
Jane Rick has been finding out what it's all about. Three-dimensional X-ray vision is no longer just the domain of fictional characters like Superman. For Professor Ian Sinclair and his team at the University of Southampton, it's all in a day's work. Using something called computer tomography, they could find themselves doing anything from gazing into the jaws of an enormous fossilised sea creature to looking at the less appealing intricacies of a landfill site. The term tomography essentially means looking at something by slices through it. But the nice thing about computer tomography as we perform it is you don't actually have to cut the thing up to see those slices. And in fact, if you can take many slices of something all at once, you then get a 3D image of what is inside it. The centre offers the single largest high-energy, high-resolution computer tomography capability in UK universities. The further important thrust of the work is not just scale, it's going to be the numbers of samples that we can put through. In addition to the very large scanning machine, we have another device sitting beside it that will handle smaller objects. In that machine, we can basically scan at a rate that's about 10 times faster than what comparable systems around the UK or indeed around the world can typically achieve today. It's not just the scanner, it's the computing hardware and the analysis software that we are integrating together into a complete workflow where the overall productivity end-to-end will just be faster than it is elsewhere. The centre is supported by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. It's being used in an incredible array of projects, including examination of the Staffordshire hoard, which is the largest ever find of Anglo-Saxon gold, the structure of plant roots and how they may respond to climate change in the future, and the development of human health and disease. However, even this list doesn't begin to cover everything. We have rubbish real rubbish from landfill sites being pulled up. This is a very important engineering challenge to understand the behaviour of landfill. We are doing innovative, absolutely world-leading work on the performance of composites for structures of great variety of applications, whereby using CT to the level that we can look at an airplane wing and if we really, really need to find individual carbon fibres, we can understand composite structures and load them and cause them to fail, understand those failures and produce new models of a form that will reliably allow engineers to design with these materials in a way that they cannot do at the minute. One of the most exciting projects to go behind the four-tonne door of the largest scanner is an enormous fossilised skull of a pleosaur found on the Jurassic coast of England. The pleosaur is a fearsome beast something like 17 metres long. The pieces are large lumps of rock and it is of considerable interest to take the small bits that the skull has become broken down into, scan them, get the exact structure and then digitally reconstruct it. We can also see the internal structure in considerable fidelity. We can pick out where blood vessels, nerve channels would have laid, where tendons would have been on that were holding the whole thing together. There's only a handful that's been found in the world, and the skull we have represents one of the most intact and least deformed, and therefore is a very valuable resource to gain information from.
New insight into the evolution of man has been provided by an unusual find on an archaeological dig in Africa. So this is extremely interesting story of an uninspiring brine lump of rock being brought to the lab with the notion that it may or may not have been a fossilised crocodile poo. This was found in an area of Africa where apes that were ancestors to hominids, humans, were known to live. And it was felt to be very important to understand what conditions, what environment they lived in, particularly was there water, were there lakes around, were there marshes around. The underlying question is, was living in and around water one of the driving forces for apes becoming two-legged and subsequently evolving into humankind as we are now? We imaged it and they came to the conclusion it was a crocodile poo. And this strange small lump of uninspiring nature turns out to be part of a much larger picture of human development and human evolution. In the long term, who knows what other uses the centre could be put to? A bit like Superman's powers. It seems the possibilities are endless. There are so many opportunities, it seems to be limitless at times. I have used the terminology to people of imagining having Superman's instant 3D X-ray vision. In a way, that's what this gives you. Something akin to that can be achieved. I'd like that. That was Professor Ian Sinclair from the University of Southampton ending that report from Jane Reck. Now, in other news this week, a very big breakthrough in understanding how our brains control our immune systems. For many years we've known that the way you feel and also that certain brain conditions can directly influence how the immune system responds in the body. But actually how one was connected to the other has been very difficult to suss out. But now there's a piece of research published this week in the journal Science by Feinstein Institute researcher Kevin Tracy and his colleagues, and they've actually unpicked what's going on. They've been looking at the spleen, which is one of our very important immune organs. It's in the abdomen on the left-hand side at the top. And branches of the nervous system go into the spleen, and they signal to this group of found white blood cells called T lymphocytes, CD4 cells. So the nerves secrete the chemical noradrenaline onto these white blood cells. The white blood cells respond to the noradrenaline by producing another chemical called acetylcholine by turning on a gene called CHAT, choline acetyltransferase, which makes acetylcholine. And that acetylcholine then goes on to other immune cells and modulates or controls their activity to suppress the production of inflammatory chemicals. And so in this way, the brain, the nervous system, can turn off inflammation and it can protect patients or reduce the risk of getting things like septic shock and that kind of thing. The researchers did the study in a very elegant way to prove that this was what was going on because they used mice which had no ability to make these CD4 white blood cells and the effect went away and they then transplanted into these mice the CD4 white blood cells from other healthy mice and the effect came back again and they were able to show that it's only when these cells are active in other words they're responding to some kind of inflammatory signal that they then hear the signal from the nervous system and as Kevin Tracy points out in his paper it's not just the spleen that does this because we have lots of instances around the body where there are white blood cells that can talk to each other and the uh, nervous system in this way, including lymph nodes, your glands, where you react to incoming antigens or challenges or infections, and also the payers' patches, the aggregations of lymphoid tissue 
in the guts. So understanding how this is working is going to give us a whole new way potentially to combat inflammatory conditions, including possibly autoimmune conditions elsewhere in the body and in other conditions as well. Cat. That's fascinating stuff. The immune system is really absolutely incredible. Um, thank you. And now, with a look at what else has been making scientific headlines, here's Mira Senthalingham with this week's Naked Scientist's News Flash. Tobacco plants could hold the key to large-scale production of flu vaccines in the future. In research unveiled at the ESWI Conference on Influenza in Malta this week, Canadian biotech company Medicargo have been adding genes encoding the outer coat of the influenza virus to tobacco plants. These produce immune-stimulating particles that resemble the flu virus, but are devoid of any infectious content. Professor Brian Ward is Medicargo's medical officer. Viral protein then migrates to the surface of the plant cell and it auto-assembles into these small virus-like particles that look from the outside like a virus but have nothing on the inside. The British Geological Survey have published a risk list of 52 chemical elements that could soon be in short supply. Abundance, location of reserves and political stability of countries mining the elements were taken into account when compiling the list. And at the top were metals like platinum, tungsten and the rare earth elements. From the University of Exeter, Professor of Mineralogy Francis Wall. So things like hybrid cars, uh, wind turbines, mobile phones, they all use a huge number of elements. In a mobile phone, there are something like 66 different chemical elements incorporated into that technology. So we now need to be looking at the availability of elements all across the periodic table. Wheelchair users could soon use their eyes to direct where they go. Dr Prashant Pillay's team at the University of Bradford have developed a tracking device resembling a pair of glasses that, in combination with an electric wheelchair, uses cameras to track the position of the wearer's eyes. The most important thing about this is to try and give a lot of independence to the disabled. Our final aim is to try and have a probably old house which you could control just by looking at different appliances. So you could look at the TV and switch it on and look at the radio and switch it on and then get onto the wheelchair and then look exactly where you want to go and it takes you. A camera developed by UK scientists can detect when someone is not telling the truth. The device looks for telltale facial changes, including altered expressions, blood flow and eye movements known to be associated with lying. Inventor Hassan Yugel is at the University of Bradford. Our accuracy rate is 70%, which means we can catch uh, two out of three lies. We hope to go beyond that up to a level of 90%. We see this uh, in, let's say, police interrogation scenarios, immigration, border control points, anywhere uh, where interviewing is involved, including potentially job interviews. And finally, levels of testosterone in men drop when they become fathers. A trial of over 600 men in the Philippines, led by Christopher Kazawa from Northwestern University, found that single men have higher levels of testosterone than those who have become fathers. And amongst those helping with childcare levels fell by up to 34%. Interacting with the child can lower a man's testosterone, it seems, but we also know from prior studies that men during pregnancy of their mate approaching birth, you see a drop in their testosterone before the child is born. And so that suggests that there's something psychological perhaps. And it also could be the stress of, of an impending birth. We don't really know, but it seems like there are multiple ways by which having a child can lower a man's testosterone. 
The work suggests an evolutionary adaptation, using high levels of testosterone to attract and secure a mate, with levels lowering at fatherhood, wiring men biologically to help with parenting. That's Mira Senthalingam with this week's Naked Scientist News Flash. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories you've heard so far, transcripts and references are all available at nakedscientist.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.